This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Flyer, by the way, again, for those of you who attend all of the seminars, you will be getting your own evangelism starter kit, your Youth Rush GYC edition canvassing bag, and also the books that come with it. And today we, before we get into the seminar, we have someone who works here in the Northwest Union. His name is Jeff Kimmel, graduated also from Souls West. And if you've been attending our seminars, we we have given an invitation for you to try literature evangelism. And so Jeff now will come up and talk a little bit about the possibility or the opportunity for you to do literature evangelism here in the Northwest. Good morning. It's good to be here. It's good to be in the Northwest. Um, I just want to share a little bit about call portering here in the Northwest. Recently, there's been an insurgence of youth involvement, as we know, on the West Coast a lot. And specifically, call portering has been just a booming, exploding all over the Northwest. And uh, it, I mean, I think it was in 1999, there was one or two programs. Uh, 2013, there's going to be close to 30 programs. So things are moving, things are happening up here. And uh, recently, it was in 2009, we had our first program in the Northwest in Idaho. We had one program, and we had 10 people. <laughs> That's how we started. This last summer, we had uh, five programs, and we had over 100 people. This summer, we're going to have six programs. It just keeps on expanding, expanding, expanding. And it's not just about numbers, but numbers do indicate how things, what is actually happening out there. And uh, specifically, I'm working with the Oregon Conference. I was working with the Idaho Conference, but um, I'm working with the Oregon Conference now, actually leaving from here, traveling down to Oregon to start my job. And uh, I want to invite you and tell you about our program in Oregon, just starting, but I'm super excited about it. This is kind of the philosophy behind what we start our program off of. Not just Adventism, but Christianity, there is not just a large involvement happening inside the church, but there is a large movement out of the church. 50% of young people are leaving the church, even in our Adventist schools. They leave school, uh, they get done with university, and they're, they're gone. That's happening in the Christian church. Tons and tons of youth are leaving. So the philosophy behind what we're trying to work with in Youth Rush is, is this. Let's not complain about this. Let's make a difference. Let's be, let's be the change that needs to happen, right? It doesn't help to complain about it. So um, what would you expect coming to Oregon Youth Rush? I know you guys have probably heard a lot about what Youth Rush is already in the previous, um, previous seminar. So I want to share a little bit specifically what Oregon Youth Rush is like. Um, <clears throat> we focus on probably three different main things, I'd say. Number one is developing ministry skills, your spirituality, and mentoring, okay? Uh, ministry skills. Actually, call portering is an incredible ministry to learn skills for any line of ministry, not just ministry, but even in the secular world, you will learn things that will keep you on edge with other people. Um, re- being able to reach a variety of people. Um, when you knock to the door and you see 
someone that's an atheist or agnostic, you're not going to fall over or run away like I did at my first few doors. Uh, I ran away. Oh, sorry. Nice to meet you. Bye. But you learn to be able to reach those people where they're at. You re- learn to relate to them and not be judgmental, but still make an imp- try to make an impact. So being versatile, adaptable, resourceful, okay? Uh, practical psychology. You get to learn how to read people. That's very, very valuable. Learn what they're thinking. Try to be able to reach those things. Uh, Christian sales tactics. Not just sales tactics, but Christian sales tactics. That's important. No manipulation. Um, Decision-making. That's very important with soul winning, right? Decision-making. You can tell them all the truth you want, but if you can't bring them to a decision, what good is it? Um, As well as communication skills. How can you share what's on your heart and be able to effectively communicate that to the person. These are very effective, practical ways of things that we try to share during the summer. Spirituality. Um, Spirituality is something, obviously, you're coming, that should be one of your greatest reasons why you come. Uh, It grows your individual and personal faith a lot. You learn to trust the Lord more and more as you're out there on your own. No one else is next to you and you're at the door and you're talking to someone. You reach, you reach someone, you don't know what their background is and you're, Lord, how do I reach this person? Um, <clears throat> learning how to hear God's voice. Uh, learning to follow him. Learning to be taught by him. It's not just a group aspect. Yes, we have group encouragement, but we also have the individual where you're out there door to door. So for the the extroverts, yes, there's lots of people, but for the introverts, you will be by yourselves, okay? <laughs> mentoring. We like to really focus on mentoring. We want you to learn and to grow as much as possible. From when you show up during the summer, we want to put on spiritual miracle grow on you and, and just make you grow and make you the best person you can be. We are there for your success. All the leaders are there to make you successful spiritually with your skills and in every way that you want to grow. Uh, that's what we really like to focus on in Oregon. Our leadership team is just grow, 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 grow you as a person because what good is the gospel if you're sharing it with someone else if you can't experience it in your own life, okay? Uh, Oregon Youth Rush, it's fresh. This summer, it's the newest program in the Northwest, um, and uh, you can go to OregonYouthRush.org. We're developing in the process of making the website right now. We have flyers in the back. You can come to our booth. It's the first booth. If you come in the right exit uh, at the exhibit halls, we're right there. Uh, you'll see the Space Needle. That's a Washington Youth Rush booth as well. These are our cards. You can check them out in the back. He's holding them back up right there. There's also little decision cards. If you want information, more information, write your name, your number, your information. I will personally call you, okay? And uh, contact you. If you guys have any questions, feel free to contact us. Um, Oregon Youth Rush, you can fill out a questionnaire. Any questions, uh, come visit us at our booth, and uh, you'll be hearing a lot more about Youth Rush in the next couple sessions. Thank you. Good morning, GYC attendees. My name is Bill Crick. I'm the director of literature ministries for Central California Conference, and I love GYC. I'm a, G- I'm a certified GYC nutcase. I love GYC. I'm so happy you're here. I'm happy I'm here. 
and I just hope I can go to every other GYC between now and the second coming of Jesus. This morning, uh, I have a couple of my friends who are going to come up. Come up, Ranella. Uh, this is Ranella. Ranella was originally from Ohio, and she did her first summer, before we get into our message and our, our topic, our material this morning, we have a couple of young people who are going to talk about what participation, participation in literature ministries did for them personally. When was your first summer? 2006. 2006. Okay, she's going to talk about that. Good morning. I always love hearing testimonies because when I see people up there, I'm like, oh, they're just a regular person like me, and they can do it. That's, that's awesome. It's encouraging. And uh, this morning, it's definitely a testimony of God's mercy towards me. But my little sister's right here, so she knows a lot about this. We grew up in an Adventist home. I was actually born in Andrews University, where my dad was going to seminary. And we grew up in a very Adventist home. It was wonderful. I loved my childhood. And we knew all the, you know, my dad, he would, he would write scripture songs for memory verses. And so we'd be up front and we'd be singing our memory verses. And it was awesome. We, we always studied our Bibles. We um, had Friday evening worship. Every day before the bus would leave, my dad would gather us around, even if the bus was waiting there, and he'd be like, we have to pray. And we'd all pray, and we'd be so embarrassed, because we're like, the bus is right there, Dad. Come on, let's go. But we always prayed in the morning. You know, my dad would ask me, he would say, Ranella, who are you going to marry when you grow up? And I would say, Daddy and Jesus. He'd say, good girl. It was well-trained, very well-trained. We would go to the, the pool, um, high sea pool in the community, and all the kids would be going under the big mushroom with the water falling down and down the slides. And there me and my sisters would be, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. We loved our Adventist upbringing, and we knew a lot about the Adventist message. And we grew up in Michigan and Ohio and came here to California when I was 12 years old. And going into high school, things started to change a little bit. You know, even if you grow up in, in an Adventist home, things change as you surround yourself with different people. You know, you're trying to be cool. And you start asking questions. And the pull of the world just becomes stronger and stronger, doesn't it? And without you even knowing it, You know, you can find yourself in a place where you're like, where am I with God? And I remember when I was just turning 16, my friend Victoria was talking to Bill Crick about canvassing in the cafeteria. And she said, come on, Ronella, come with me. I have to go talk to this guy named Bill. And I was like, oh, I don't want to go with you. She said, come on, just come. So I was sitting there. She was talking to Bill. And there was a few other guys from Souls that were talking about a mission trip they were going on to Ethiopia. And I was just sitting there, and I was going to Africa with MBA, the school that I was at. And so I started talking to them. And at that time, Bill turned to me. He's like, you should go to Ethiopia. You know, this is what it's going to be like. You're going to be preaching and all this stuff. And I was like, wow. So I decided to go. And lo and behold, I was on a mission trip with a whole bunch of coal porters. And so, of course, coal porters, because they have such a great experience, always get other people to coal porter. So that summer, I ended up canvassing. And that I will tell you, it was one of the best summers of my life. For the first time, I was opening the Bible and actually understanding it for myself. The leaders would have worships in the morning, and I felt like I was being spiritually fed. 
and I would actually leave crying every morning. I would, during worship time, I'd just be bawling, and then I'd go to my, to my little sleeping bag and pray and just tell the Lord, like, oh, Lord, forgive my sins. Help me to be a better person. And that whole summer, I would spend hours and hours in the morning just looking at my Bible and going through it and just sensing God speaking to me personally. And that experience in the mornings, I really needed because throughout the day, I was knocking on doors and talking to people and having people ask me questions sometimes that I couldn't answer or meeting people with a real spiritual need. It's amazing. You meet all kinds of people there. You'll meet atheists and agnostics. You meet people who were just praying for someone to come by. You'll meet people who um, you know, don't really want anything to do with God. You meet all kinds of people. And I remember needing Jesus every morning and, and sensing, Lord, I need to spend time with you today. And that summer, it's amazing. In just 10 weeks, you grow so much. And ever since 2006, I couldn't leave that experience. And so I kept on doing it every summer. But in between those summers, it was very interesting. And I think it's something that we can all really relate with, is that going back to school and things like that, my spiritual life would just go up and down. I remember I would come back after the summer, I'd just be so strong for God. Yeah, I'd be giving Bible studies to people. I'd be praying with people. Everyone knew me as the spiritual person in high school. And I remember my senior year of high school where um, many times the devil really will try to, to just get you down because he knows you're about to make really big decisions, right? I remember my senior year, I just really backslid a lot. And I just got involved with this guy, which is horrible. Oh. And then I, I, I started making all these horrible decisions. And because I knew I wasn't supposed to be with this person, and because of the other things I was doing, I stopped opening up my Bible, and I just wouldn't open it up in the morning. Because the conviction was there. We all know when we're convicted, we don't want to talk to the Lord because he will convict us. And so I, I didn't open my Bible. And, and over the months, little by little, just going further and further away, until finally, two weeks before graduation, I was just like, Lord, I'm done. I'm ready to just to give myself to you again. I'm tired of caring what people think of me. That year, I actually shaved my head. I don't know why I did it, but I didn't feel pretty. <laughs> and, I, and all these things, and so I was trying to make myself beautiful in all these other ways, and I was just tired of living for myself and pleasing other people. It's tiring, isn't it? Living a selfish life. And so I... I gave my heart again to God, and, and that summer, I ended up canvassing for the last two weeks of the summer, and in those last two weeks, I remember God just telling me, Renella, because of the times we're living in, I want you to be trained. I want you to really learn what it means to be an effective witness for me, and I felt personally God calling me to be a full-time witness for him in, in missionary work. So I decided to go to a two-year Bible college. And after that, since then, been doing Bible work and, and working at the conference office. And I'm still a young person just like you. I'm not very much older than many of you. But I can say today that ministry has saved my spiritual life. I know who I am without Jesus, and it's not pretty. And I've seen that when I, um, I think many of us can exper- have experienced this, that when we don't have Jesus in our lives, we become carnal and who we really are. And Jesus uses ministry to save us. As we're going out and talking to other people, he is reaching inside of us too. And I want to encourage you today as you hear the seminar here, wherever you go, just throughout GYC, if God is calling you to something more in your spiritual walk, 
It's because he sees the end from the beginning, and he's trying to save you. God has been so good over the last few years, and I wouldn't trade the last five years of my life for anything at all. And so I just encourage you to give your heart to Jesus in whatever aspect he's calling you to, and you'll never regret it. Thank you. Joey, we have another short testimony from a young man coming from a totally different angle, totally different background than what you just heard. By the way, when Renella was 15, she preached to 10,000 people at one time in Ethiopia. That's enough to drive you to your knees, isn't it? Joey. I brought my computer, not because I'm going to preach, but I have three specific things I want to share. And when I get up here, my mind tends to go like everywhere but what I wanted to share. Because there's so much to say about what you've experienced in your life, you know. Um, When I first came to Christ, I was addicted to drugs and alcohol and the worldly things. I was raised Pentecostal, um, but I had forsaken that. And after I came to the truth, Adventism, praise God, um, the first thing they did was they kicked me out on the street and they said, go hand these glow treks out to the people that you meet at the doors. I said, okay, I like people. I've, I'm, I like to, to meet faces, but this is intense. Went the whole day, and I was so immensely blessed. And the, the reason it was such a rich blessing is actually talked about in a, a letter 44 by our sister, also evangelism. And it says, those who are most actively employed in doing with interested fidelity their work to win souls to Jesus Christ are the best developed in spirituality and devotion. Yes. Their very active working formed the means of their spirituality. Nice. There is danger of religion losing in depth that which it gains in breadth. This need not be. If, in the place of long sermons, there is wise education given to those newly come to the faith, that's me, teach them by giving them something to do in some line of spiritual work that their first love will not die, but increase in fervor. And as I was at these doors and I was knocking on the individuals and and meeting with them and seeing their different walks of life and where they were spiritually and and both temporarily, I I was thankful for where I have come from and where I am now. And that actually carried over into last summer. I did the same thing as Renella and a lot of our friends here. I I went co-portering. And as I did that, um, the Lord really showed me my need to be in constant communion with Him. It wasn't something that I could just experience in the morning and experience in the evening if I felt like it at night and then be safe. It had to be a daily thing because we don't know these individuals that we meet. I have no clue who they are. How am I going to show them their, their need, much less fill it? You know what I mean? And so the Lord had, had, had been showing me, Joey, you are not there. You're here where you are. Be very thankful. That was the main thing that's happened to me. And by the grace of God, I am so thankful. Every day I wake up and I praise him and I ask him, how in the world am I in Seattle, Washington right now as a 21-year-old kid who was two years ago um, doing all the things of the world? Um, and not only that, but he, he actively takes you further. I've never grown so much than I have in these last two and a half years of my life doing this specific work. Um, I'm going to share with you an experience I had. I had uh, it was actually recently we were in Berkeley area, and I had been praying that, uh, that, that blitz for sets to go out. We like sets of books to go out because it's like a shotgun. And so when you, when you shoot a shotgun, it spreads and you can hit a lot more. And so when I get a set out, I'm like, yes, there's a young person going to be reached, an adult, and there's probably going to be an atheist that watches one of our prophecy DVDs or something. And I'm praying, Lord, please. And it had gone a long time and it hadn't happened. Um, that evening, my sister was picking up everybody. She was my leader that night. And uh, she still had a few students to pick up. She says, Joey, uh, there's this church I want you to check out. 
And immediately my heart was like, and I'm like, ah, man, that's so intimidating. A church? I don't mind a door. I've kind of grown a little bit, but a church? And she says, so I was like, yeah, let's do it. Inside, I'm like, no way. I talked to the pastor. Um, Instead of trying to have some like cupcake introduction to the situation, I show him the great controversy right away. And I say, this is the book you need to read. And he says, what's it about? I share with him. He ends up getting the great controversy, the desire of ages, steps to Christ, Christ's object lessons. He gets a DVD on the prophecy in Daniel 2, and he gets the final events from uh, the the AFCO. And so I'm thinking, amen. Amen. But not only that, I go home, and actually before I even uh, go home, I get in the car, my sister shares, or not my sister, one of the sisters shares a verse in Acts, and she says how one of the heads of the congregation was converted, and then the rest of the congregation was. She'd been praying for that. So I'd been praying for sets. It went out. She'd been praying for a pastor to get it, and, and that went out. I go back home, and I share it with another sister, and she had to stay home. She was really, she was really ill, and, um, and she's, she's like, man, I, was, I just wanted something. I want to go out so bad, and I'm like, oh, let me tell you something that happened. I tell her that a pastor got a set of books. She sits up in her bed. She slams her hands on her thighs, and she says, what? I go, yeah. She goes, I've been praying for that all day since I couldn't go out. Amen. So this work isn't just something you do door to door, but it's so spiritual. It's, God is so interested in this work. It, is, it was so precious to see. Not only was he answering my prayers, but as a collective group, he was doing something so mighty. And who knows what's going to happen to that congregation. And um, that, was, that, was the best, uh, that was one of the best experiences. But that's not to say this work is a cupcake walk in the park, you know. Um, it really is trying. It challenges physical, spiritual, mental, emotional. But when you're tried, it's just like working out. You know, you see those buff guys screaming and yelling, ah, and all of a sudden, you know, a few days later, they're like ripped, and you're like, how did that happen? They're like, I was miserable when I was lifting 600 pounds, and you're like, oh, and that's exactly how we grow in this work, <laughs> is the Lord really does try us, and he blesses us. I, uh, I gave a worship <coughs> on faith, and the Lord had challenged me in this area. Joey, do you really believe that certain things can happen? Yeah? No. Inside? Joey, do you really believe? Of course. You're God. You're the God of the universe. No, because I can't. I'm, I can limit you, you know? And um, I gave that worship, and that day I talked about specifically how the Lord will, will, will wait in answering a prayer so he can give you an increased amount of faith because faith is an action, and you have to keep acting on, on the answer to prayer that God's given you without realizing it. And you, the more and more you act, it's like, I believe it, I believe it, but it's not here yet. And so he began to stretch my faith I'd immediately gotten a few books out, and I was like, all right, this is going to be a, a good day. It's going to be a good day. Lots of books are going to go out. I was excited. And that happened in the first 20 minutes. Seven hours later, zero books had gone out since those first 20 minutes. And I was like, Lord, and I was being as faithful as I could. I was like, Lord, I, I mean, I tried. I showed. I tried to do everything different I could at the doors. I changed my whole strategy three times. Nothing happened. And I was like, Lord, what's happening, man? And he's like, just, just keep going. And knock on the door. Who is it? Joey, you know me. <laughs> Who is it? It's Joey. I don't know you. He opens the door and he has a gun. And I'm like, whoa, that's, that's intimidating. I tell him, that's intimidating. He goes, what do you want? I go, we're just Christian students. Can you put the gun down? And he's like, he's like no. And he's like, turns out he's Muslim. I'm like, that's fine. You don't need to prove the point with a gun. Like, can you please? And then the, he eventually slams the door in my face. And I'm like, Wow, this is the, one of the roughest days. I've never had a gun pointed at me. It had been seven hours, no books, a gun in my face, dogs probably attacking me. I don't remember. It was rough. And I'm thinking, Lord, I believe in you. I, I, I don't believe in you. This is hard. I'm like, Lord, please. I stop, and I just pray, and I pray. And at my last door, 
a man opens the door and he looks at me with like joy on his face and he goes, you must be a Christian. I said, yeah, I am. You, you, are you one too? You seem pretty happy. And he's like, yes, come in. Um, tells me his wife and his family are at a Bible study. He's been looking for something deep and more solid and more firm, not just the, the, the happiness that the world has to offer and the, and the, the shallow Christianity that's Amen. there in our world today. Amen. And I'm like, wow. I really am thankful that you are still real, and my faith is uh, definitely grown. Seven hours stronger, because it had been a long time since that had happened. He ends up getting seven books. Six of them were the same books that the pastor got, and another one was a, little, uh, was a Prince of Peace, which is all about Christ for the little kids. So not only, I mean, has the Lord helped me to revive my life every day when I go out, and not only has he helped to bless others in answering their prayers, but he strengthens you and grows you so much so that you look back and you think, how on earth did I not believe that that could happen? when really there's so much more that can and God will already do. It's a blessing. This work has changed my life and I know for a fact it can change yours. Thank you, Joey. Thank you, thank you. I'd like us to get into our message now. On your outline it says... From Gutenberg to Glow, from Gutenberg to Glow, burned at the stake. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please be with us as we spend just a moment in your word and talking about your powerful hand in history. Let your name be glorified in the name of Jesus. Amen. John chapter 20. If you do have your Bibles, we won't spend a lot of time flipping back and forth. I have some things on the screen, but I'd like to just start with John chapter 20, starting at verse 30. John chapter 20 and verse 30. The Bible says... And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I have here with me a little visual aid. Anybody seen this before? It's called the National Enquirer. You've never read one of these before, have you? There's a whole bunch of stuff in here. In fact, a few pages in, there's a whole section called Gossip. (laughs) And uh, you can tweet this guy who writes the gossip column and tell him maybe some new, some more gossip. They've got a few pictures here which help boost their case about rumors and gossip. I was once talking to a lady in a home, <clears throat> in a home, and she said, I said, I was made a joke about these tabloids, about how foolish they are, and how they're just made up, and, uh, and I said, I couldn't, can't believe anybody would read those things, because they're not true, and she says, I read them, and I think they're true, and I said, oops, it's kind of hard to recover from. Do you know how many of these things sell per year? I'm not talking about all of them. You know, there are, there are five, or five or six different titles at the, at the checkout stand. Do you know how many of this particular one sells every year? 
The answer is 31 million. Do you know why? Do you know why they sell so much? That why they print so much? It's because people buy them and read them. Is that amazing? Folks, do we need something better for people? Do we need some better literature for people than this? Oh, we do, we do. So much. I have a short little video that I'd like to share with you. And I'm going to be reading some of this. I'll just be reading a couple things for the sake of the, of the, uh, this thing is not coming back in. There we go. Okay, this is from the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, jw.org. It's talking about through the years, they're now at about 1,900, and those are the number of copies. In 1903, 30,000 copies. This is from jw.org. Our friends, the Jehovah's Witnesses, publish a little magazine called Watchtower. And this video I downloaded from their website. Okay, now we're at 1950. 1.2 million by 1950. What do you all think? It ran in 1970. Keeps going. Uh, awesome. By 1980. 1979, 9.2 million. Now we're at 1990. All those languages. Okay, now we're approaching 2010. And here we are at 2012. 42 million. I have a question for you all. Did you see that last number, 42 million? Do you know how many that is, 42 million of these things? Check this out, okay? This is Awake. This is Watchtower. These are the two publications that are famous by the Jehovah's Witness. You find them in laundromats. You find them everywhere. Do you know that last number? What was it, 42 million? Do you realize you think that's how many they've distributed? That's not how many they distributed. That's not even how many they distributed in the year 2012. That's the regular subscription amount per issue. And that doesn't even count awake. Folks, the the Jehovah's Witnesses produce over 2 billion pieces of literature per year. Per year. Folks, do we need something better? We need something better. You you realize it was said that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the fastest growing Christian denomination in the United States or in the world. That was said by Adam Ramden. That's correct if you don't count the Jehovah's Witnesses because they're growing faster. They're growing faster than we are. Door-to-door and literature. They're going much faster. But they're not counted as a Christian denomination, so they didn't make the survey. Oh, we need something more, don't we? God's plan is for literature. God's plan is for literature... to have a powerful effect on people spiritually. Let me just get to the right place here. 
There we go. God has primary ways of communicating with humans. Uh, this is just a quick review from Mike Tuazon, the last three seminars, right? Uh, God wants to speak to us face to face, but since Jesus went back to heaven, then he does the second one. That is through Jesus. Well, Jesus went back to heaven. Okay, he prefers to do face to face, then Jesus, then the Bible. That's God's plan. He speaks to us through a piece of literature. And then finally, through nature, of course. Now, John 20, verses 30 and 31, that's where we just were a couple of minutes ago. Let's pick this apart. Truly, Jesus did many other signs, right? But these are what? Written, that you may believe. Why are they written? That you can be a believer, that you can be a believer, instead of a doubter, right? These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may what? Have life in his name. So there it is. Read, believe, have life. This is God's plan A. God wants people to read, believe, and have life. Do you see that there in that scripture? Read, believe, and have life. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 36, there's a very short story there, which we don't have time to read this morning. But it says, in succinctly, God's plan for literature. It says, succinctly, the, the background of the story is that the king of Israel is being rebellious, he's being stubborn. God tells Jeremiah, send a message to him. Write it down. So he gives the message to Baruch, his secretary. His secretary takes notes and then goes and proclaims that message in the ears of the king. And God's plan is in verse 2, okay? Uh, Jeremiah 36, verse 2. Take a scroll of a book and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, etc. Verse 3, it may be. Oh, do you hear God's heart? It may be. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities which I purpose to bring upon them, that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. God says, I want to forgive you, I want to forgive you, I want to forgive you. Please, 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 please just repent. And so he sends this little literature, piece of literature, this scroll, to the king in hopes that something will happen, something spiritual will happen. Somebody will be pricked. Somebody will, 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 will hear the Holy Spirit through that piece of literature. Now, of course, in uh, verse, well, we know, again, we don't have time to read it, but later in that chapter, it's a fascinating story. Uh, the, the, the princes and the nobles are kind of a little scared, which is a good thing. They run to the king, and the king takes it, and it's, it's cold. It's in, he's in the winter house, and he takes a knife, and he chops it up and throws it in the fire. By the way, we're going to talk about books being burned in the fire here in a couple minutes. This, this Jeremiah 36 was repeated about 2,000 years later. Same concept books being thrown in the fire. God's purpose, <clears throat> purpose in the publishing work is that people will turn and be saved. Well, how did it all start? The history of publishing. How did it all start? The first publisher in the world, a man named Johann Gutenberg. We don't even know his birth date. He was a shoemaker, little-known man in Germany. And uh, he was German, and he, he uh, set up his shop in Salzburg, and he studied, uh, he went to Holland to study and use wooden movable type with a guy named Lawrence Coster. Now, uh, Lawrence had gone out to the country to have a nice day with his children and uh, his, his little kids or whatever, and he carved their names in a tree, Billy and Bobby or whatever their names were, and in the bark. And he, he noticed that if he took the bark off and it kind of fell in the dust, that their names kind of showed up. So he said, well, why can't I do that in my, for, for printing? I mean, right back then, in the early 1400s, all they could do was just write, and it took them a long time to write. Right? Ouch. 
So he made little pieces of wood in the shape of letters that he could move around, and so he did a kind of a crude printing business, Lawrence Koster. Well, Johann Gutenberg came to hang out with him, and he said, this is good, but wood decays quickly. Why can't we make them of metal? So he invented the first printing press with metal movable type and around 1450. There was the first print run of anything anywhere. The first book published was what? The Bible. I just visited the Library of Congress and saw a Gutenberg Bible just a few months ago for the first time. The problem, though, is how was he going to recoup his investment? As soon as there were books, there was a need to do what? Sell them or distribute them, right? How do you get them out? There was no Amazon.com back in the days of Gutenberg. Now, I'm reading from a, story, from a book called The Story of Liberty by Charles Coffin, and he has a somewhat imaginary conversation uh, here in just a minute. Uh, and he's talking about, about Gutenberg. And Gutenberg's, his, his invention was financed. You know, good inventors need a guy to bankroll them. And it was financed by a guy named John Faust. And Faust said to himself, man, this Gutenberg has consumed a lot of my money inventing this thing, but it looks like it's working. I'm not going to trust the sales to anybody else. I'm going to do it myself. So Faust went out and started selling Bibles by himself. Now, he was a very wealthy man. So uh, we pick up the story here. It says, Faust knocks at the archbishop's... uh, I'm sorry, I'm one page ahead of myself. Uh, Charles VII is king of France. He's a suspicious man. He's afraid that someone will put poison in his food. So he's the, the king is, a, is, a, is a, a bit of a shaky fellow. And then it says, A traveler knocks at the archbishop's pl- uh, palace with a book which he would like to show his lordship, a beautiful copy of the Bible. The archbishop is delighted. He never saw a more perfect book. The letters are even. What a steady hand the writer must have had. Okay, so he thinks, obviously, they don't know about the invention. How clear and distinct, not a blot, not an error anywhere. It must have taken the writer a lifetime to write it. He pays the price. Now he'll have something to show his friends, which will astonish him. Faust goes to the king. The king, uh, he comes to the royal palace. The Bible is on vellum. It contains 607 leaves. It's such a beautiful king. The book buys it. Okay, so the archbishop has bought a copy. The king has bought a copy. Now, the archbishop and the king visit each other. <laughs> I have something to show you, the most magnificent book in the world, says the king. Indeed, the archbishop is thinking of his own book. Yes, it's a copy of the Bible. It's a marvel. The letters are so even that you cannot discover a shade of difference. I have a splendid copy, and if yours is any more beautiful than mine, I should like to see it. Here's mine. Just look at it. The king shows his copy. The archbishop turns the leaves. This is remarkable. I don't see but that it is exactly like mine. The pages are the same. The letters are the same. Can one man have written both? Impossible. Yet they're alike. There's not a particle of difference between them. How long have you had this? The archbishop asks. I bought it the other day from a man who came to my palace. Strange. I bought mine from a man who came to my palace. Neither the king nor the archbishop knows what to think of it. They place the two Bibles side by side. They find them precisely alike. There are the same number of pages. Each page begins with the same word. And there's not a shadow of variation. Amazing. But the archbishop in a few days is even more perplexed. He discovers that some of the rich citizens of Paris have copies of Bibles exactly like the king's and his own. More than this, he discovers that copies are for sale here and there. Where did you get them? We got them from a man who came along. Who was he? We don't know. 
This is the work of the devil. The archbishop can arrive at no other conclusion. The Bible is a dangerous book. When in the hands of the laity, right? That was what they thought. The Bible is a dangerous book. None but the priests should be permitted to read it. But here is the evil one selling it everywhere, or if not himself in person, some man has sold himself to Satan for that purpose. He soon discovers that it is Dr. John Faust of Strasbourg. You have sold yourself to the evil one and must be burned to death. Till this moment, however, the great invention has been a secret. But Dr. Faust must divulge his secret or be burned. He shows the archbishop how the Bibles are printed, and John Gutenberg has printed so many of them by now that the price has been reduced by one half. The archbishop, the king, and everybody else is astonished. So Faust saves his life, but the idea of selling himself to the devil has gone into story and song. They were evidently satisfied with his explanation that he had not uh, supernaturally produced these books. It's impossible for us 500 years later to really understand the importance of this. When one entity had control of all of politics and all of your life, only one entity allowed you to do anything and nobody could think otherwise. And here comes printing presses. Oh, people felt so free. I had the privilege when, uh, a few years back when I visited Germany to visit the little cell where Martin Luther translated the Bible into the people's common language there in Germany. And I had tears streaming down my face as I saw that and imagined what it would be like to not own a Bible. And then to get a Bible and then to be free from superstition. The Roman church never fully recovered from the effects of the printing press in the Middle Ages. And praise God. Praise God. Well, they were sold by carefully chosen people. Very important piece here. What time are we looking at? I need to pay attention to the clock. 10.34. This is a book called Martyrs to the Tract Cause. Powerful book. Story after story. They're all short stories. These are students. These are young people, the age of GYC people, the age of you. And they, they're, they're from France, and they believe the gospel. This is now just a few years after this story I just told you. They believe the gospel, and they go to Geneva. They go to AFCO, or Arise, which back then was in Geneva, Switzerland. It's across the border in Switzerland. But back in their native France, they were singing this song in response to the Protestants, to the stake, to the stake, the fire is their home, let justice be done. That was the song they sang in response to the Protestants. So they took off, they went to school in Switzerland, and instead of David Ashrick, it was John Calvin. And they came out of his school on, summer, on, on break, and they had such a burden for their home country. They said, I want to go to France, and we want to sell copies of the scriptures, pieces of the scriptures, and religious books that had the truth in them. And they knew, they prepared themselves. They knew that it meant their lives. It almost certainly meant their lives. This is story after story of those people. Fascinating. This is a story called The Five Students from, from Lausanne. They had prepared for themselves for their calling by great labor, labor self-denial, fasting, and prayer. Uh, the five young men were fully aware of the danger that awaited them. Uh, when they reached the city of Lyon in, in southern France... They accepted the invitation to, uh, to, to dine at someone's house who they'd met along the road. They didn't realize it was a trap. They were arrested right there at the dinner table, arrested by 20 policemen, taken off and thrown into prison. At, the, at, their, at their trial, 
one of the students said to the judge, you must not forget what sort of judgment you pass on us. If your condemnation is unjust, there is a true judge above who will, in the great judgment day, condemn you. These words made a deep impression upon the judge. Pale and trembling, he looked around him. Nevertheless, they were condemned to death and delivered to the civil authorities. They lay in prison for a full year while people tried to get them out. One of them rode home to his parents. His parents had begged him, begged the, uh, the young man not to become a Protestant. They were Roman Catholic. And he wrote back to his parents, who were very wealthy. He said, he said, my dark, damp prison is far more pleasant to me than your elaborately ornamented parlors. The jailer's keys sound more sweetly to my ears than all the music of your splendid instruments. I'm happy in the shades of death, for I'm ready to lay aside this mortality and enter into God's rest. They tried to get them out. Calvin wrote to them, your chains have become illustrious, he wrote to the five students. Switzerland tried to labor with the king of France, but to no avail. The cardinal prevailed, and they were condemned to being burned at the stake. The day of, the, the day of their execution, the record says they encouraged each other, saying, let's be steadfast. The end of our course is at hand. Our triumph is certain at the stake. Joyfully, they ascended the steps of the scaffolding, right? Because they had to get up before they, they had them uh, uh, hanged, as it were. Joyfully, they ascended the steps of the scaffolding, one after another, the youngest being made to go first and the eldest last. Each in his turn laid his clothes aside and was afterward bound to the stake. When Marshal Alba's turn came, that's the oldest one, he knelt in some time upon the pile of sticks in prayer. When seized by the executioner, in other words, quit delaying, buddy, your time has come. When seized by the executioner, he said to the lieutenant, grant me one more favor. What is it? said the lieutenant. Let me one more time kiss my brothers before I die. Well, do so. Then he kissed each of his, his friends and said, adieu, my brethren. And they all embraced and said, adieu. Finally, Marshal Alba put his arms around the neck of the executioner and said, my friend, do not forget the words which I have said to you. He was then bound, <clears throat> bound to the stake, and the pile of sticks were kindled around him. A hangman received orders to make sure of their death, so he put a rope around the neck of each condemned young man, having attached it to a machine that would serve as a gallows. But the fire severed the rope before the machine could be put in motion. The flames streamed up in the air. The gazing crowd looked on. But many in the immense throng never forgot the last words which one of the five students of Lausanne said to each other, Take courage, brothers. Take courage. How many of you went on outreach yesterday? Can I see your hands? Very nice. You weren't arrested, were you? There's story after story in here about pe people being arrested. One time, they frisked one kid, one guy. They found glow tracks, essentially, in his pocket and arrested him, took his tracks from him. If, if you were carrying tracks, you would be arrested. Many of them had their books burned around them or on top of them. They had their books burned. By thinking about the tract and book work in when, it, when it cost so much to engage in it, it makes us look like wimps, doesn't it? I'm a wimp. I'm with you. I'm one of you. Believe me, I'm one of you. I was at a gas station some time ago, and I saw a very nicely dressed lady pull up in a nice SUV right on the other side of the gas tank, and I was putting gas in, and I felt this impression I should give her a glow tract. I thought, no, she's busy, you know, all those things. And no, no, no. And finally I said, okay, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just not going to forget. I'm not going to fight this. This, this is ridiculous. So I pulled out a glow tract. I went around. 
I said, here's something for you to read. That's my canvas. Here's something for you to read. And I turned, and she says, wait. I said, oh, no. She says, what denomination are you? And I said, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. She says, oh, they used to send me literature. I went to some church, Seventh-day Adventist church, when I was a little girl. To make a long story short, just a few weeks ago, she was baptized. Amen. Folks, what I did took no skill. It just took a little bit of guts. And these people that I just read to you about, huge guts. Huge. Well, I have a lot more to share with you, but our time is almost up. We have about five more minutes. Um, I want to talk to you all about what God is doing. Folks, God continues, God continues to do amazing things through literature. I, I'm just amazed at how he continues to over and over again to show us glimpses. Michael Tuazon in the previous me messages emphasized how this is delayed gratification evangelism. It's more fun to go out and have results after five weeks. Boom! That's not this calling. Literature evangelists are delayed gratification evangelists. However, there have been a bunch of times where God pulls back the curtain and lets us pick fruit early. He lets us pick fruit early. Now, I'm just going to cruise through some of my slides, which we don't have time to go through. There we go. Oh, this is, just, this is a mass Adventist distribution outreach in Brazil. This is, guys, this is like another planet. There's, I think there's some, one or two people here from Brazil, but to me this seems like another planet. This is just amazing. 60,000 Adventists gathered in the public square of Sao Paulo, Brazil, after they had all gone out and distributed three million copies of the Great Controversy in one Sabbath afternoon, <clears throat> including our General Conference president there in the slums of Sao Paulo. That's exciting to me. And there's a half a million copies in one day in Ecuador. I mean, it's just amazing to me. I mean, I, we're just total wimps over here. It's, just, it's, it's lame, but it, it, this is inspiring to me. It really is. That's the Great Hope Project. Where are those stories of God converting people by means of literature and by the visits of literature evangelists in today's world? Oh, this is awesome. Brandon, this is a true story. Brandon, he says he was sitting in his house and, his, and, and he was feeling horrible. And he, when he answered the door, there was a modestly dressed young woman who had an amazing glow about her. This is in his own words. Thinking about it now makes me think it could have been an angel. She was not only well-spoken and had an obvious understanding of the Bible, but she also seemed to really care about me. How, I asked myself, could a complete stranger care about me and take the time to come to my house? She sold him a Final Events DVD by Doug Batchelor. That night he watched it, and with tears streaming down his face, he knew, he says, I, I knew then that my Father in Heaven had been waiting at the door for me the whole time, and almost instantly... The eternal love of God changed my heart. This story happened six years ago, and we just found out about it. Delayed gratification, did I say? Delayed gratification. When you get to heaven, you are going to have people who come up to you, and you're gonna, they're going to say, do you remember that day when such and such? You're going to say, no, I don't remember. Help. I mean, we've got to go back to the archives and check that one out. Delayed gratification evangelism. The story of Brandon. By the way, he was baptized... And he is now teaching Sabbath school at the largest church in our conference. Oh, this story is amazing. This guy named Moses. So, so there's a girl uh, going door to door in the city of Salinas, California. 
and she knocks on the door, and this, this man, young man comes out and doesn't say a lot. And he, he looks at her books, and he says, do you have anything by, by Ellen White? And she says, sure, yeah. He says, what, what denomination is this? She said, well, it's Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And uh, so he gets two or three books, and he says, where's your church? And so she gives him the address of the church. The next Sabbath, two or three, three days later, I think, he comes to church. And after church, one of our young men goes and talks to him and says, what's, what's the story? And so the story comes out. He said, three years ago, I was down in Arizona, and a young person came to my door and sold me a book with a bunch of Bible studies in it. And he said, I love that book. It explained about the Sabbath, and I started keeping the Sabbath. My family, which is Roman Catholic, basically disowned me, kicked me out of the house, and didn't want anything to do with me. My pastor didn't want anything to do with me. And so he, he started keeping the Sabbath, and he and a couple of friends would study out of that book. And he had just moved up here to California, and he, he, he wanted to come to church because he, he, he just loves the truth. He loves the truth about the Sabbath. And when the girl knocked on his door that day, he said, I need to go to church. Sabbath morning came, he said, and he said he felt so unclean, so unworthy to go to church. You ever felt that way? And he picked up the book Steps to Christ, which the girl had sold him, and he found where it was written, Jesus loves to have us come to him just as we are, sinful, helpless, and dependent. And he says, that's it, I've got to go to church. He went to church. A few weeks later, he was baptized. He's still going to church today. Just because first one young person in Arizona, then another young person in California were willing to go out and have a little bit of guts. Praise his name. Folks, I, I, there's story after story here. I have a list of 102 uh, people that I could tell you about. We don't have time right now. Though this is a cool story. This lady, long story short, she found a glow, story, a, a glow tract on her door. That's it. She studied the Bible. She was baptized. <laughs> Praise God. Who put, the, who put the glow tract there? We don't know. Nor will we ever know, probably, until we get to heaven and watch the DVDs. <laughs> I'd like to pray with you. Uh, there's a lot of stuff happening, folks. There's a lot of stuff happening. God is doing amazing things. People still read, by the way. That's one of the slides that I missed. You wonder, why are we talking about literature? People don't read anymore. Forbes magazine says, surprise, the conventional wisdom is wrong. People are reading more, not less, and they give data to prove it. I didn't get there today, but it's fascinating. Fascinating. If you stay next period, we will go over some of that, and then we're going to talk about the shaking, literature, and eschatology. Let's have prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy to us. You're so kind to us. You're so patient with our fears, patient with our um, unwillingness or reticence. Thank you for that. Thank you for these young people and for their desire to know you more. Bless them as they make decisions what to do with their lives, as they choose to step out in service of some kind. Bless them. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to be able to pass out literature wherever we are. And thank you for showing us these little stories to encourage us along the way. Thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.
This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.